This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a current release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie, or in this case, a current television show. This week, we decided to put our troubles aside and take a vacation to a cutting-edge amusement park. So we packed our bags, put on our spurs, and decided to toss back a few shots of whiskey and take out some bad guys. And we enjoyed it so much, we did it twice. Although the first time, Scott had a really wimpy-looking 70s mustache. That was weird, right, Tasha? (laughs) Yeah, that was weird. Nothing like his vibrant, manly facial hair of today. Uh, But I am surprised that you decided to focus on that detail rather than, like, the killer robots. For this episode, we decided to break a little bit from our normal format and look at the new HBO series Westworld, created by Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy. It's adapted from the 1973 film of the same name, written and directed by Michael Crichton. Both share the same essential premise. For the right price, visitors can travel to an amusement park that allows them to live out their fantasies of the Old West, hanging out in a saloon, betting the ladies of the house, shooting down gunslingers, etc. Both take strikingly different approaches to the material, however, most of them directly related to when they were made and the audiences they were designed to serve. Creighton's Westworld is a tight and tightly paced feature film. Nolan and Joy's series is suggestive, open-ended, and designed to play the long game with its central mysteries. A few episodes in, we've been introduced to dozens of characters and at least as many intriguing subplots designed to leave viewers wondering where we're going to go from here. Looked at together, the two Westworlds reveal just how thematically rich Crichton's straightforward-seeming film is, as well as the changing desires of those interested in watching a similar story several decades later. So saddle up with us as we head into two different versions of the same dangerous place. What is your name? Uh, Gardner Lewis. Just got back from Westworld. Tell us how you liked it, Mr. Lewis. When you played cowboys and Indians as a kid, you'd point your fingers and go bang, bang, and the other kid would lie down and pretend dead. Well, Westworld is the same thing, only it's for real. I, I shot six people. Well, uh, they weren't real people. What Mr. Lewis means is he shot six robots, scientifically programmed to look, act, talk, and even bleed, just like humans do. Now, isn't that right? Well, they may have been robots. I mean, uh, I think they were robots. At le- I mean, I, I know they were robots. Yes, the robots of Westworld are there to serve you and to give you the most unique vacation experience of your life. Thank you, sir. And you, madam? Hello. Well, what is your name? Uh, my name is Janet Lane, and I was in Roman World. What is the one thing that stands out in your mind about Roman World? Oh, well, I think it would be the man. I just feel marvelous. I mean, it's just a warm, glowing place to be. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye. Well, there are some of the comments of the people who just returned from Dallas. Why don't you make arrangements to take our hovercraft to medieval world, Roman world, and Westworld? 
Was it worth $1,000 a day? Contact us today or see your travel agent. Boy, have we got a vacation for you. There's more than one way to get to Westworld. In Michael Crichton's 1973 film of the same name, you can arrive via hovercraft, assuming you don't want to visit Roman world or medieval world instead. In the new HBO series, you can get there by way of underground train. You can even arrive in a different version of Westworld via helicopter. In the 1994 Simpsons episode, Atrian Scratchy Land, whose malfunctioning robots owe more than a small debt to Crichton's movie. But audiences have been traveling to Westworld even before Westworld. The very work that coined the word robot, the 1921 play R.U.R. by Czech playwright Carol Chapek, is a tale of mechanized creations who turn against their masters. To create a robot or any kind of artificial intelligence is to fear it. We invest our creations with our own desires and resentments and wait for them to be reflected back to us. The more convincing the creation, the greater the unease. If a robot looks like us and offers a convincing simulation of humanity, surely it must share our feelings. And if it does, where do you draw the line between the real and the artificial? And is there a line at all? Westworld, the first film Crichton directed, is part of a still ongoing conversation about the issues raised by artificial intelligence and robotics, one preceded by such efforts as RUR, Metropolis, and 2001 A Space Odyssey, and continued by The Stepford Wives, The Terminator, Battlestar Galactica, Ex Machina, and, of course, HBO's Westworld. In some ways, it's one of the cruder contributions to that conversation. James Brolin and Richard Benjamin play Chicago visitors to Westworld who arrive and set about taking in all the sex and violence-based pleasures of the frontier, until the robotic attractions turn on them, none more dangerously than the black-clad gunslinger played by Yule Brenner. Cue the action-packed finale, roll credits. But Westworld's a cannier and slyer film that sometimes gets credit for being, and a worthy entry in the catalog of downbeat science fiction films that dominated the early 1970s. Let's start with the Klegalites. When something goes wrong in Westworld, technicians show up to investigate, bringing with them illusion spoiling arc lights. And suddenly Westworld looks like a movie set, which of course, pulling back a little, it is. Crichton's film was one of the last to be shot on MGM's backlot, and, like its neighbors, Medieval World and Roman World, Westworld is constructed largely of movie cliches. Its visitors aren't driven by the need for adventure so much as the desire to immerse themselves in the comfortingly predictable. Then, the comfortingly predictable turns on them. The traditional Western, Hollywood epic, and medieval fantasy have become outdated in the early 1970s, giving way to the grittier visions of New Hollywood and the revisionist Western. These sorts of fantasies work until they don't. And there were hints they might not work much longer. And maybe movies wouldn't either. The fact that Brenner, the star of The Magnificent Seven, would resurface just 13 years later in a different sort of Old West as a robot seems appropriate for the times. Crichton was inspired to create Westworld after visits to Disneyland and a trip on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, which opened in 1967. Imagining the possible deadly downsides of a more advanced version of the attraction is what gave us Westworld. From Disneyland, he also took the idea of an underground world beneath the park, staffing it with cold technicians who seem almost as mechanical as their creation. It's no accident that the first glitch in the film comes from a female robot who refuses to service a visitor sexually. The guests are hedonists, the creators bloodless functionaries, but the robots... They develop a passion that feels painfully, perilously human. All right, everyone, let's talk about Westworld. Let's talk about sex with robots. <laughs> well, you caught my attention. <laughs> yeah. The protagonists <laughs> of Westworld throw themselves into it wholeheartedly, even as the film kind of sets up the fact that they, they know they're having sex with robots. The illusion is not complete. They have these hands that are <laughs> make them less than human looking. And so it's apparently the only way to tell a robot from a human, which is you know, kind of a lazy conceit, I think, <laughs> for this film in some ways, because it seems like if you can get 
the rest of a human down, you could probably get the hands down. But let's just <laughs> let's just go with it. It raises issues I'm not sure it really wants it has a room to explore or a PJ rated film could explore. But uh, what do you all think about the the focus on sex in this film? I mean, I thought it was hilarious because it's a PG rated movie. So it does what PG rated movies so often did to represent sex, which is two people from the shoulders up uh, with nothing on their shoulders, rolling back and forth. <laughs> like they, they roll back focus. and forth a lot. <laughs> and, and I'm sorry, but that's just not how sex works. Maybe in the early 70s. Maybe in Westworld is how it works. But... Uh, well, it's because they haven't gotten all of the other bits down yet either. So the, the rolling back and forth is necessary. It, it's, it was funny to me in particular uh, like it's weird to call out that sex scene but that sex scene was hilarious to me because if they had just faded out after the first rollover or the second rollover like Crichton could have gotten away with okay this is an abstract representation of sex Mm -hmm. but they rolled over like five or six (laughs) times and then afterwards there's kind of like the ah you know I've I've had all of the rolling over that I needed to achieve sexual climax it's like (laughs) it's very specific holding in on this moment that doesn't need to be held in on you know, it's definitely a PG representation, but it does want to get that question out in the open. It's a weird question, too, because it kind of gets to the heart as to whether or not you can see these creations as human or subhuman. And what does it mean to have sex with someone who's not human? I'm thinking back to Isaac Asimov's uh, robot novels, and, and there's a uh, sort of a question at the center of one of those. I remember one character saying that it's just another form of masturbation. Is that what it is in this film? It's more like prostitution. And I don't I don't just mean because the characters, the robot characters they're having sex with are literally prostitutes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's because they're having sex with people that they're paying to have sex with who don't necessarily have a choice in the matter, who are doing it because they're obligated to, like, literally by their masters. Right. Well, it, it's sex as a product. Like, it, it, it's, yeah. it's interesting that... It's transactional. Yes. You know, in Westworld, the movie, as opposed to Westworld, the TV show, we do get other worlds beyond Westworld, or I think it's called Western World, right? right? In, in the movie, I which think it was shortened for the movie marketing. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. But kind of each of the three worlds, Westworld, Medieval World, and Roman World, they all kind of have their own vibe and their own things you can do. But the constant across all of them mm-hmm. is sex. That's made very explicit that in each one of these worlds, the main attraction or one of the main attractions is the ability to purchase sex with a humanoid object, I guess. I think that is kind of an interesting way to look at sex. And I think by removing the actual human element, it maybe makes that an easier proposition, making it with robots. Yeah, that's why I don't really get the idea of it being prostitution because there's just that seems like so intimate and so much of a two-way street masturbation seems like a much more fitting analogy sure but i think it's kind of central to the film and and i think it's developing to be a central theme of the tv show is whether or not that's that's the case because the robots if they come become any kind of self-awareness it becomes something different entirely mm-hmm. i mean the it's not necessarily the inciting event but the first time we see a robot refuse it, you know go to glitch or or go against the desires of the guests are when the one um sort of serving wench or serving serving lady in in, in um you can call world. her a wench okay i'll call her a wench. <laughs> we're gonna get the e rating for this one i think uh, uh um, for saying wench refuses the sexual advances of the 
self-styled king in, in medieval world. And and I don't think that's an accident. I think sex is sort of at the heart of what this film is doing in some ways. And, and it's sort of, it brings the, the question of whether these creatures are, you know, have an agency and existence of their own, or if they're just machines. All those uncomfortable questions are kind of brought to the fore when, when you think about whether or not you're having sex with something against its will. I mean, I'll push back a little on the whole sex thing. I The idea of these worlds, I mean, what, what unites them isn't just sex. What unites them is the idea of you're the client and you can have anything you want. And if you what you want is to like eat all the food in sight, you can do that. If what you want is to murder people, you can do that. We just see less of those things because, well, one of them's less cinematic. I mean, we keep seeing people in medieval world like sitting around the long tables like covered with, with trenchers chawing on turkey legs. But that isn't as, well, sexy as sex. I mean, it isn't as appealing visually and cinematically as, as sex. So, but, so there's not enough people rolling back and forth <laughs> during the feast scenes? Is that what you mean? Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's uh, some people rolling back and forth under the table. Well, After all, it's, it's a sybaritic world. But the emphasis verbally is on is whatever they want, like their, their pleasure is foremost, and whatever their fantasy is, these worlds exist to fulfill them. I think we just get more of sex because, you know, it's transgressive and it's visual. I was just going to interject how annoying it is to have the whole turkey leg thing turn up in uh, depictions of medieval uh, worlds because <laughs> turkey is a new world uh, animal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I like. I know I it's like a Ren Fair staple, but I didn't DNA test the legs that they were waving around. It's possible they were large chickens. I don't sure. know. Okay. Hell, it was possible it's uh, that they're dinosaurs, and or we've gotten to the Jurassic Park connection early. <laughs> Tiny dinosaurs. Maybe we should go to Jurassic Park because this is That's, obviously, yeah. in some ways, a forerunner. In many ways, a forerunner of Jurassic Park. How do you feel those two films relate to each other? Uh, I just, I feel like this is a dry run. Really, it's mm-hmm. it's a movie about a theme park which uh, is built around this fantasy come to life uh, this extinct world that has come to life and then the chaos that sort of prevails and that, that's just a theme that, that runs through Crichton's work generally because he's such a paranoiac uh, you know the Andromeda strain is like is that too it's just like this little thing that can end the world and and Jurassic Park and West World I mean you, you can even talk about you know rising sun or disclosures being you know amplified versions of things he's very he was worried about you know that it just, just starts with like a little thing and then the whole sweater starts to unravel and i think that's his theory of the universe he just kept playing out over and over again and I, um but, but at the time i mean this is so fascinating i mean to, you know to see those ideas in play in in this fairly entertaining science fiction movie I mean, his stock in trade was was technological fear, and not, and not just technological. I mean, Rising Sun was expressly a book about how like the Japanese are going to buy us, and we we have to watch out because they're they're coming and they're going to destroy our economics. That was a real concern for him, mm-hmm. like a, an actual thing that he wrote extensively about. The, this is just a fable, but we need to fix this, or they're going to like buy us and throw us into the sea. Did, did that happen? Are we in the sea right now? <laughs> It is a little humid in here. Well, you know, I would actually say, um, to not digress too much, you know, we laugh about Rising Sun as being, you know, this prescient vision that wasn't, but there's an element of it that was, which is which is the manipulation of images and technology to uh, tell lies and to, uh, you know, that's there's a lot uh, that you can see 
in there that is sound, has a lot of foresight into where we are now uh, technology-wise. I mean, you do have a point there. I, I think what made Creighton interesting was that he spun out believable technological futures. I mean, it is not hard to believe that if we created these uh, complicated worlds for ourselves where we expressly let go of control in both Jurassic Park and in Westworld, there's the idea that we've built something more complicated than we can control and we don't seem to mind. We don't seem to care. The point is how much money we can make. The point, it, it, I mean, it goes back to Jaws. And yes, there's something dangerous going on. But what's important is that we're making money. We can't shut down the dangerous park because of what we stand to lose. I mean, that happens in all three of those movies, that that express idea of the pencil pushers saying, we don't care about chaos theory, we care about our reputation. We've got standards to maintain for the tourists. Yeah, like that's one of many direct links between the Jurassic Park and, and Westworld is the we have to shut the park down. No, we can't shut the park down. The money, you know. Um, but I was kind of thinking, listening to you talk, that there's kind of a more abstract connection between the two is the use of technology and science to recreate a natural world, a false version of a natural world. I, I think one of the most interesting things about the style of Westworld, which I wouldn't say there is a whole lot of it there, but the contrast between the Western vistas, which are very kind of Hollywood set, but there there are a few sets that look very much like the natural world compared to the underground, the very sterile beep boop layer of the control room. And that is something that we see in Jurassic Park as well. You know, the this very lush jungle island uh, and then this very high tech full of flashing lights uh, command center. There's a park that's for the visitors and there's a park that's for the people who run it. Right. I mean, just, just like Disney World. As someone who somehow accidentally ended up downstairs once when I was visiting Disney World, it is it is sort of this, this vast... What, what I saw was was a vast sterile uh, underground, not not unlike this. Did you go down a manhole cover to get there? <laughs> no, but um, I love that seventies technology too. And, and like you know, I, I grew up seeing that as, as the depictions of technology, so it still kind of looks uh, uh, impressive to me. Even I, though... I like how they're able to control the whole park just by staring at screensavers mm-hmm. all, all the whole time, mm-hmm. <laughs> staring at screensavers and yelling numbers. I mean, there are so many scenes of people just saying, you know, give me a one two on seventy eight. Okay, but we're going to be four, like just over and over and over reportedly Creighton shot a lot more footage than we see and he found it really dull Mm -hmm. and he cut out there's a lengthy list online of scenes that he shot and cut out and yet he he saw fit to keep a whole bunch of people just sitting in front of flashing lights (laughs) reciting numbers there's a point to that though i I think i think the 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 bloodlessness of that versus the lustiness of the park makes for an interesting contrast and the fact that all the characters are completely interchangeable down there is it's pretty fascinating Mm -hmm. i mean there's only two named characters in in the whole movie Mm -hmm. three if you count the gunslinger which isn't really a name but i think the the anonymity might be part of the point oh i'm i absolutely agree that it's part of the point and the contrast between the sterility of everything going on downstairs and the just kind of the day-to-day like work-a-day aspect of it i mean there's such a strong contrast drawn between these people are on vacation let's give them whatever they want and we're working here so we're just going to sit here robotically reciting numbers there's also an interesting thing going on in that the robots upstairs are so human and the humans downstairs are so Mm -hmm. robotic Mm -hmm. 
I, th- I think what really makes it a different experience in Jurassic Park, to loop back to kind of how we started this conversation, is the robots are humanoid. I mean, they are meant to create the illusion of humanity. Not They're not lizards or elaborate zoo attractions, but metaphorically, and introduce all these, these possibilities that the dinosaurs don't. I mean, is, is this a film about oppression? Is this sort of a product of the late 60s, early 70s unrest? Is, is this about the underclass rising up? Is this, is this a political film? Do you see it as that? Well, I mean, I think one of the biggest differences between Westworld and Jurassic Park is that Jurassic Park expressly spells out what its philosophy is, Mm -hmm. how it's about chaos theory. And Westworld leaves that all open to interpretation. And I don't know if it's because Creighton didn't feel the need to spell it out, whether he wanted it to be a more open metaphor or... He, he just wasn't thinking in those terms. It was just a, like a, a combination of adventure and, and system breakdown. But I mean, Jurassic Park has speeches about chaos theory and how the center can't hold and how it's inevitable that things are going to fall apart. And Westworld just kind of has, we've built these things very complicated. We don't know what they do. I would not call this a political film. And I think like it's very easy to apply those thoughts of slavery and oppression to the the conceit here, but I don't necessarily see that on film. And maybe it's because I watched this after watching some of HBO's Westworld, which engages with those ideas very strongly and, and thoroughly. And it feels like Westworld, the movie, is kind of more interested in the amusement aspect of it, I think, than, than anything else and the idea of how humans want to amuse themselves by being gluttonous and lusty and... and Some sort of theme to the things that you list <laughs> Yes, and... Uh, the, um, wrathful? Yes, and wrathful. <laughs> I'm, I'm stabbing at the air trying to remember what <laughs> wrath is. <laughs> so as, as far as like a statement, that's one that I can kind of get from what I'm seeing on screen, whereas kind of what you're talking about with slavery and oppression, I really only kind of get in a vague extra textual sense. Have we talked enough, though, about the hands? <laughs> uh, I mean, just just the distance that that, gi- that that gives us, because it's something you end up thinking about quite a bit with the HBO Westworld and the lack of such distance. Uh, why do they have this flaw that allows us to see them as robots? And why is it necessary, given how much focus he puts on the like kind of glowing silver eyes? Mm. I thought those only happened like once the breakdown mm-hmm. happens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they do. Oh, oh okay. So, but, but the ability to tell robots from people by their hands also only really comes up meaningfully after the breakdown. The people within the scenario don't spend any time focusing on it or calling people out for having robot hands. Though it does give that first Yul Brenner appearance, it does kind of give them the freedom uh, to just start shooting. The, okay, he's got the messed up hands. Let's let's give this whole shooting robots thing a try. So there's there's that distance. But the distance is significant because if you don't have it, uh, and you can really legitimately confuse them for human. That's a whole l- another level of darkness there. I think there's also just a poeticism to the fact that it's the hands, which in visual art, you know, it's kind of a cliche that the hands are the, the most difficult thing to capture accurately. And, and artists will just do entire studies on just hands. And I think like if you're looking at these robots as a work of art created through technology, the idea that the one thing that they weren't able to get quite right being the hands, there's kind of a neat little twist. Well, the ha- and the hands, I mean, uh, are what make us unique because we have fingerprints. fingerprints yeah. I don't want to quite let the politics go. You had this question in here. I didn't think for all of us to reject it. So. I know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like... Yeah, I, convince I us, Keith. Well, I, I don't think Crichton certainly drifted far to the right later later in his, his career. So it's not necessarily the person you go to for visions of a radical politics. Yet, I don't think this 
not unlike Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. I don't I don't think you really get this idea of an uprising, this underclass uprising, without the unrest of the late 60s and the early 70s. I, I think that's kind of that's, that's subtext here, however deep it is. Maybe I'm being influenced too much by the HBO series or Battlestar Galactica, particularly the sci-fi series uh, Battlestar Galactica. But I think the conversation about, you know, where does machine end and, and humanity begin? It's maybe deep in the subtext here, but I think it's here. I think it's deep in the subtext. I think it's too deep in the subtext. One of the things I think even if I hadn't been watching HBO's Westworld, cycling back and watching this film again, I was surprised at how little there was here. Because I think there's a, a mental drive to fill in there. There are so many stories going on here. There's so many bits of story potential involving different characters and what they're doing involving like the life below the whole idea of the controllers below. Like I feel like Cabin in the Woods mm-hmm. is as much a spinoff of this movie the is. person i was watching with also brought up kevin in the woods yeah. yeah it just it feels like we took that shot of these, these people like laboring over machines in the dark and made an entire film about it and there's so many things in westworld that feel like they could be drawn out in that way and an entire film could be made out about them i don't think that he underlines the political side i do think it's really interesting that the kind of vendetta that we focus on with westworld is a single gunslinger coming after the man who's killed him repeatedly and there's a sense of a personal grudge there in medieval world we focus on a single knight who is doing what he was supposed to do which is fight this one person except that he doesn't know that he's supposed to lose but in roman world we have a slave uprising and we have all of these people simultaneously rising up to kill their masters i really wonder if Creighton thought through at all, like where all of those robots went afterwards, because the the entire all three worlds kind of end up deserted. Yeah, like some of them obviously run out of battery and shut down. But where did all the slaves in Roman world go after stabbing everyone? Well, hopefully no place wet based on the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that also gave me a little bit of Simpson flashback. Yeah, Wasn't yeah. it like a Polaroids? Yeah, yes. it was camera photography. Flashes. Camera flash. yeah. There's also the fact that Delos and all the worlds in it cater to the super rich. You have to be extremely wealthy to go there. So by extension, I think you can read something into the kill the rich aspect of, of this too. And I don't, again, and also given Crichton's leanings as, as he got older, like, I don't think that was necessarily intentional, you know, but if you look at kind of robots as machines and machines being the purview of the working class, and them rising up against the rich, there is certainly maybe some uh, metaphor to be drawn there as well. There is a line in there where uh, Berlin says, after robot sex time, uh, <laughs> Berlin says, boy, machines are the servant of yep, man. Yep. <laughs> he's like, it's like that's underlined 47 times in the script, right. with like little arrows pointed towards it. So one of the most striking images in this film is Yul Brenner, who's used, I think, extremely well in, in, in this role. He has sort of a... There's really no one else quite like Yul Brynner, even even apart from the shaved head. He has sort of this unique presence to him. I, I think it's interesting, though, that we get him as a gunfighter just 13 years after Magnificent Seven, as, as I mentioned before. Do you think he was well used in this? I kind of feel like he either should have talked or not talked. I thought it was sort of strange that we find out that he is capable of talking fairly early on. And then he, I guess when the robots break down, maybe, well, no, they don't stop talking because there's the woman in the dungeon. I don't know. I mean, certainly he's, he's more frightening as this like implacable, like non-speaking thing. But 
like all of these questions you're asking, I feel like could have been drawn out with just a, like a line or two, like some idea of what's going through his head. Yeah, the the third act of this movie is almost completely dialogue free, except for like, maybe the woman in the dungeon. But there there's almost no talking, and, and it's definitely eerier to have the gunslinger kind of stalking wordlessly after him and just having him be represented by sound by the clink of spurs and him hearing the breath from yards away like the the use of sound to create tension in relation to that character is really interesting and that might not have been so effective if he spoke but I agree that it doesn't necessarily track with how he is presented in the beginning. But I think implacable is really the, the only word for, for his performance. And he, he does that very well, particularly in that final third. There is something very almost inhuman about his presence. And yeah, it's very effective. It seems like it strikes me that we have not mentioned the Terminator, which yeah, is this and, film, which this that that point of view that you get is lifted. I, I, I've seen the that, source, yeah. right? I yeah, mean, yeah, no, I, I've seen Terminator credit as like the first film to do that, but no, this is this yeah, is, this is yeah. the oh, one. Yeah. The, they, they, this was the first feature film to use digital image processing, right? And and the first like what we now think of as CGI actually turns up in the not very good sequel, Future World. Just a, a brief computer rendering of a hand mm-hmm. is, and it was done by one of the early Pixar people. Well, even more so than the Terminator, though, uh, John Carpenter says that Yul Brynner specifically inspired Michael Myers in Halloween. Mm. Like that is that is where the unspeaking, implacable, it doesn't matter how many times you shoot him, he gets back up, killer comes from. Like Carpenter watched this film and was inspired. And then Jason and Friday the 13th was kind of a ripoff of Michael Myers. And every serial killer that keeps getting up, no matter how many times you shoot or stab them ever since, can kind of be traced in their lineage back to those two. So, I mean, Westworld kind of gives us our horror movie serial killer idea. And and that's really why casting Yul Brenner makes a lot of sense because he's a very strange and powerful presence on, on screen. You can't really... You know, I don't really want to imagine anyone else in that in that role. He was all, he, almost equally strange in Magnificent Seven. He just has a presence, and it, it's alien, and it's kind of you know, it makes sense that he would be a you know a robot, but he also looks like a kind of a gunslinger. And when he gets to that Michael Myers phase in the last third, it's a it's a very smooth transition <laughs> from the Yul Brenner that we understand. He's also got just an amazingly terrifying smile, <laughs> like yeah. that when when he transitions from the grim gunslinger to the pleased I'm going to kill you gunslinger like it's really chilling yeah we should probably talk about Crichton's direction which is not bad for first time outing it's got some some real uh, interesting stylistic touches I do really like that last third where, where it is daring to, to make it so silent and make it so, so relentless and, and I think it works really well and there's some really nice jarring imagery like the, the gunfighter below ground this traditional western figure out of western movies like these sterile hallways I think that stuff works really well for me I mean, the POV robot shots are really innovative and daring for the mm-hmm. time. And he apparently went to a lot of trouble to get those shots. But I also just think like he, he uses very simple special effects here very well, like particularly the throwing acid in the robot's face and the way it slowly starts to melt and steam off. I mean, that's there's some just very convincing work here. But and as Genevieve pointed out, the like the sound work here is really, really pretty effective. Like all of the the long sequences down in the corridor where Peter thinks he's gotten away and then he hears footsteps in the distance. There was that that one sequence where Peter is running through Roman world, like through the courtyard toward the manhole. And there's just this like 
kind of mechanical churning thudding noise and I'm still not exactly clear what that noise was supposed to be it just kind of sounds like machinery breaking down um, and it's incredibly unsettling and then when he drops through the manhole just stops but as far as like kind of the little touches, um, well, two things. I really like the pilot's glasses in the, in the beginning uh, when the oh, the, the hover glasses. yeah the yeah, the yeah. hovercraft uh, it's kind of superimposed imagery on the glasses, um, but also just kind of from a like a narrative filmmaking perspective, the the video that uh, that opens the the movie mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> you know just laying out the Delos through these kind of interviews of people coming out like it's 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 a kind of an odd entry into the film but it does effectively kind of set up a what could be a very complicated world and allow you to just kind of jump in it also makes itself as a, as a fairly tacky place mm-hmm. you know these, these are these aren't, aren't aspirational people you yeah. Know? yeah and and you know and there's another Jurassic Park connection too cuz Jurassic Park also has kind of a cheesy little intro to what the place is like you know what impresses me most really about this film I mean this is a first time film is that he just his instincts for pop science fiction and you know making these sort of hooky but also smart premises and make making them work just as entertainment i mean it's really established early on and he followed this film up with the great train robbery you ever see the great train robbery i haven't seen that one so entertaining it's like one of the most entertaining heist films you'll ever see and you know kind of gets buried a little bit but he just has a he has, has a way of getting you in with a very catchy premise and, and then then keeping you there. I mean, this film is not Stanley Kubrick. It's not that it's you know. I mean, we argued a little bit about how much subtext really is here or is embedded here by Crichton. Maybe it's not that much, but I think you can see this film in the context of his entire career is fitting fitting right in there. He's just such a good pop science fiction guy or a pop genre guy. Uh, but he gives you enough to sort of chew on as well, enough things to think about without going too deep. Crichton just comes up with some really nice images. You know, the image of the broken Roman statuary with the water washing across it as we're making the transition into Roman world. Um, Various shots of the kind of the dead robots like lying on the slabs in what feels like a morgue. I mean, you know, there's a lot of like kind of generic here we are in a Western shots, but there are also just a lot of like really well chosen storytelling images and i've also kind of got to shout him out for all the stuff all the stuff that he cut you know reading the descriptions it sounded like he wanted this to be a much more action-filled movie and then he realized he didn't need any of that things like the bank robbery actually playing out in real time as opposed to just there's shooting outside and our main characters kind of comment on the fact that they've got choices they could be out there doing the bank robbery or they could be inside having robo sex like they make a conscious choice and then the film sticks with them and that's such a better way to tell that story than to spend like five or ten minutes watching a meaningless action sequence with a bunch of extra people he does not cut away during that very 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 long brawl in the bornello (laughs) which goes on a pretty long time and like but keith you, you mentioned in your keynote you know that there's kind of this vibe of old hollywood uh in it and and that sequence in particular kind of really struck me as Crichton's attempt to mimic that old barroom brawl type of sequence and like there's also some humor in this movie and a lot of it comes out in that sequence like um there's one part where a bottle gets broken on someone's head and there's a cuckoo clock noise <laughs> which I'm, I'm like imagine that in the hp 
HBO Westworld. <laughs> so there, there, there is the first and second acts do have some moments of levity to them, and you do kind of believe that this world could be fun. Whereas with the HBO series, there's like I'm like, why do people go here? But we'll get into that in the second half. The, the music <laughs> in those the barroom brawl scene is also just very yakety sax. Yes, yes. I mean, it's sure. it's really played up. Finally, you're going to Dallas. Which one do you go to? Medieval world, Western world, or Roman world? Wow. I, I actually spent a fair bit of time thinking about that <laughs> during the film. And I, I don't really want to go to any of them. I mean, none of them look like a really, I frankly, none of them look like a great place to be a woman to begin with. <laughs> oh, I will take you a task on that because the woman in the video at the very beginning says how great Roman world was specifically because of the men. Because and of the she's men. just glowing. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she actually, I think, uses the terms warm and glowing. <laughs> so there's some fun to be had in Roman world for the for the ladies. I guess. I I, I don't know. Being, uh, being piled ladies. up by warm and glowing men feeding me grapes just is not is not my fantasy. I Both in this movie and in the HBO show, I immediately, I want to be behind the scenes i want to be like writing these stories and creating these characters like i want to be involved in in making these places way more than i want to be like lounging right all of them seem kind of boring i'm not a i'm not a passive vacation person okay so Todd, Scott, you look super what's the word uh perplexed <laughs> perplexed sure but flummoxed i'm ornery it, it's, no it starts with dis it's like dis- dyspeptic <laughs> Yes, you look dyspeptic. <laughs> Scott, Scott, you look like you disagree. What's, uh... Uh, no, I mean, I just, <laughs> you know, these, I uh, probably do uh, Westworld or Western, Western World. You, uh, sex and violence. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm You I'm, do I'm love your violence. Yeah. Uh, Robo sex or bank robbery? We see both. You can do both. Well, you can't do both. We see that in the movie. Oh, you got to yeah, make a choice. Right. No, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> All right, so Tasha's dead in the control room. Scott, <laughs> Scott is. I'm just. I'm just going to say robbing a bank. Um, okay, thank you. And I don't know. I, I guess I'm at the feast in medieval world. Wow. Eating a turkey. <laughs> an anachronistic <laughs> turkey leg. Well, just, see, I studied medieval literature for a bit, and I think I would just be annoyed by all the anachronisms and inaccuracies. <laughs> yeah, and, those and were annoyed. some day glow medieval costumes there. And, and like, like a really broad mix of periods, wasn't it? Yeah. And w- Westworld, I don't know. I think it would be too much excitement. I think, I think it seems I would, dusty. I think ultimately I would just go for the Dallas equivalent of the all inclusive and go with the Roman world. Just kind of hang out and. The buffet, yeah, maybe splash maybe. around in the fountain. All those glowing warm men, <laughs> splash, <laughs> yeah, the men mostly. No, splash, splash around in, in the Harold Lloyd estate where it was filmed. I know, right? <laughs> well, we're very well rounded, guys. We can't go on vacation together. <laughs> All right. Well, while we work out our differences about vacation uh, styles, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with some listener feedback. We didn't receive a lot of feedback on our Don't Breathe and Wait Until Dark episode, but we did receive a note with some unfinished business from our Kubo and the Two Strings and the Dark Crystal episodes. And we should warn this contains some spoilers about the ending of Kubo. Yeah, Christopher from Lexington, Kentucky writes of Kubo, At several points we have established that this film is largely about the power of storytelling, and I would agree with that assessment. However, I wonder about what that power is exactly and what its purpose is. I believe someone in the original discussion expressed certain reservations about the end of the movie, and I share those reservations, although maybe not about the exact same thing. My concern is that once the grandfather basically becomes a grandfather, the whole village bands together and tells him a story about himself. However, unlike the other kinds of stories that are told throughout the film, this one has a different feel, because it is not just a story, it is a lie. 
And so what are we to make of this? Is it okay to tell ourselves stories in order to make us feel better about ourselves and the world, even if they are complete fabrication? Does such storytelling slash lying redeem us from the past if we cannot remember the past or simply refuse to acknowledge it? Are there ways in which storytelling can shape our identity to such a degree that our very identities become a fabrication? I'm reminded of Kurt Vonnegut's opening to his novel, Mother Night, which reads, We are what we pretend to be, so we must be very careful about what we pretend to be. Even though in the film, the villagers' intentions do appear good, I am still troubled by the idea that lying to someone about who they are so that everyone can live happily ever after is a good idea. I mean, I think I'm one of the people who who protested the ending. I've certainly seen other people protesting the ending. And I think it is problematic because, yeah, there's a big difference between the stories that you tell yourself about yourself to shape your perspective in positive ways and the stories you tell about other people. And it, it really does feel very strange to me that they all gang up to recreate, forcibly recreate somebody else's reality. It's an unusual ending, but I liked it for that reason. I, I think I guess you're saying the mull over uh, in a way that a more conventional ending wouldn't. I mean, it's sort of the movie kind of going all the way with the idea of storytelling being central to the human existence by actually showing how it forms a person's entire psyche. Yeah, I'm on that episode also not really loving the end, but I, I was thinking about what Keith said in that episode about it kind of being folkloric in a lot of places. And I think viewed through that lens, that ending maybe works in the idea of kind of curing or fixing the bad guy by by giving him a new story. It it doesn't necessarily work in a logical real world sense, but in a sense of it being, you know, a fable or, or folklore, it's not as difficult to swallow for me. It's just, it's interesting because the ending of Paranorman is so expressly about, you know, you have the power of storytelling, you can use the power of storytelling to put this ghost back to sleep. It's the way that we've always done it is like through this, like very artificial telling her a story about who she is. And instead, the protagonist chooses a different route and a much more daring route and a much more unsafe route and a much more interesting route. And then the end of the box trolls is about a character who's offered the the version of the story about himself that he wants like they say they basically say to him this is who you want to be we'll let you be who you want to be do you understand that you're destroying yourself and he chooses to destroy himself to pursue the ending the vision of himself that he wants so kubo just feels off to me because it's it's so far off those guidelines i guess of how to do a really unconventional and interesting ending. So moving on to Wait Until Dark and Don't Breathe, Tasha, would you like to share some feedback we got from our Facebook page? Sure. A listener named Will wrote, As always, I loved these episodes, but I thought you missed an opportunity to discuss how the films treat their female characters and how some of the gender issues haven't aged very well. I didn't want or expect Susie to immediately be a Jason Bourne-style fighter, but watching Wait Until Dark recently, both my wife and I were struck by how passive and dependent she is on the male characters. She seemed very naive and willing to trust men, first her manipulative husband and then the strangers who barge into her life. In the second half of the movie, she's brave and resilient, but only as a last resort, and even then those qualities disappear almost immediately. The end, where she runs back to her husband, who seemed to enjoy having her depend on him, felt especially off. Why not have this as a moment for her to be strong on her own, or to run to Gloria, who actually helped her? Did any of you feel this way? How did Susie's role feel to you? It's also a nice contrast to Rocky's character in Don't Breathe. She certainly has more agency, but is also subjected to some skeevy exploitative treatment. Something of a two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. Did any of you feel this way about Susie in Wait Until Dark? No, I would say, <laughs> would be my answer. I did, not, I did not feel that way. I think she's in a situation where she 
is simply vulnerable. I mean, she just is. <laughs> She's blind. Uh, and she ha- she does have to depend on other people, and she has to figuratively and literally feel them out to figure out whether they can be trusted or not. And she does it in a way that is strong and resilient, uh, but but it is it's something that she has to build up to based on the information that she accumulates o- over time. So I never, I never really thought of her, you know, in the terms that uh, our listener expresses here. I mean, she does run to Gloria before she runs to her husband. Like, they're, they're, reunion is i think very touching um and very front and center but also i mean i have no problem with uh like a weak or vulnerable female character if the whole story is about them finding their strength i mean this this film is expressly about a female character who is very vulnerable and is trying to put on a a brave face um and trying to find her her courage and having trouble with it and in the end it becomes a matter of survival and she finds it no it's not not only did it not bother me i thought she was a terrific female character as always we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net we may feature your response on a future episode or post it on facebook for discussion And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll look at Westworld, the other Westworld that just debuted on HBO, which has more robots, more killing, and a different sort of gunslinger. You'll also get to hear this. Even if they're balsa wood chairs and it's sugar glass, you get thrown out through a window face first after somebody punches you, you're going to get hurt. Like, are there heat sensors on the robot's fists? Look for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us on facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at, at NextPicturePod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, take a moment to recover from the barroom brawl we all just enjoyed, and join us next time. Run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Go tell that long-tongued liar, go and tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter Tell them that God's gonna cut you down Tell them that God's gonna cut you down Tell them that God's gonna cut you down